And I have a question for you as we begin. Or not a question. I want to challenge you to an experiment. I want you for the next seven days, whenever you're watching or listening to the news, and I know sometimes that's bad enough, but I want you to put in your mind and see how many times in the next week as you listen to the news or anything else for that matter, you hear the word sin. Or you even hear the concept of sin, right? So it's amazing. I mean, not only will news be reported, but it will be analyzed by all different kinds of people. And no one will talk about, though they'll talk about all the things that have done wrong, they won't use that word sin or the concept of sin. You know, Carl Menninger, way back in 1972, he was a world-famous psychologist. He started the famous Menninger Clinic. He wrote a book in 1972 called Whatever Became of Sin? And I wonder if you wouldn't have asked that question uh, much more today, right? And, and what he was arguing as a psych psychiatrist, that a lot of the categories, there used to be moral categories of sin in our culture, we've now made more into psychological categories or medical categories. Or sometimes even today we use appropriateness, right? Some, you know, your kid does something wrong and you might say, well, that's not appropriate. Well, that's fine if it's something like, you know, pulling food out of the bowl at the table. That's not appropriate. But if they tell a dirty joke or something, that's not inappropriate. That's morally wrong. That's a sin, right? Anyway, manager's point was this. He said, his main argument was twofold, that we have lost the language of sin. And second, because of that, it was going to be soon impossible to have a moral society. And I think his words, to some degree at least, have been fulfilled. Now, the reason we're bringing that about is because we're coming to a passage in 1 John where he wants to warn us not to take this flippant, cavalier attitude towards sin, but instead to, to give ourselves to becoming more righteous. And it's a, it's a very wondrous and fascinating passage. I, I hope uh, I'm able to bring it out clearly enough. But with that that background, we're going to be swimming against the tide here on this, right? Because our, our world is not going to encourage us to become moral people, to become righteous people. In fact, they may even mock that word righteousness. So let's take a good hard look. We're going to do a couple things. First of all, we're going to read the passage, 1 John 3, 1 through 10. Then we're going to pray and ask God to prepare our hearts. And then we're going to dig into it. All right. 1 John 3, 1 through 3, or 1 through 10. Some of this you have in your bulletin. I'm going to start, though, in verse 1. Behold, what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear children, now we are the, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. 
He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Father, these are some very strong words. And without tamping that down in any way, help us to understand it in the context of what John is saying in this book, God. But we pray that your spirit would have full sway in our hearts. None of us do not need to hear this because none of us are righteous fully. None of us are all the way there. None of us are free from sins that we need to leave behind. So we ask God that you would do two things this morning, or rather three. First of all, that you would help us to see what you're saying to us through this passage of Scripture, that you have preserved for our good through 2,000 years. Secondly, that you would lay your finger more specifically on any sin that we need to turn away in a, as an act of love to you. And then thirdly, that in this, we would be seeing you as more exalted because of who you are and what you do. Thank you, Father. Amen. All right. Some strong words there, right? Anyone who, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. So how many of you lived without sin this weekend? Um, yeah, right. We're, we're there, right? So how does, how does John say all this? What does he mean? Well, I want to break this down into three parts here. First, I want to just put this in context that being in Christ means we seek to be righteous as he is righteous. And maybe that's even the summary of the, of the passage. But within this, and, and that's going to be brought out, but within this, we need to remember that we will still sin. So John's words cannot mean or don't mean that if we're a Christian, we're not going to have any sin problem or that we'll eventually grow out of sin. Now, how do I know that? Well, two things. Number one, the way to remember how to interpret Scripture is, first of all, the context. There's a historical context, but there's also the context of the book and the teaching of that book. And you recall the historical context, John was writing to a group of Christians who are being plagued by these false teachers. And these false teachers got hold of this weird, weird doctrine, what we would call Gnosticism today. Talk about that here in just a second. They tried to apparently convert the rest of the church over, and when uh, they didn't do it, these people who are under this false teaching left. And yet they're still trying to pull people out of the church. And so you see that right here in this passage, right? Right in the middle. Dear children, let no one lead you astray. And then 1 John 2, 26, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So the context of what's happening here is that there's a false teaching that John is battling. And we would call that today antinomianism. Antinomianism, well, that's hard to say. It's easier to write. All right, what is that? Well, that's a $20 word, basically for a five-cent concept. I, I will do whatever I want to do. All right. And so... Basically, it's a teaching or attitude that we don't need to obey any of the commands of the Bible. So that word namas, you see it right there, that means law. Obviously, anti is against the law. 
And so as a teaching, now we'll talk about it as an attitude here in a second, but as a teaching, it seemed to be based usually on one of two things. Number one, there was the idea, which apparently the false teachers of John's day had, that God was beyond good or evil. So in this world, you know, we have good or evil, but that's, that's not really who God is. God transcends all these things. He is above right and wrong. And if you take that seriously, then you come to the idea that good and evil aren't really categories in this world, and therefore sin isn't either. And that's part of what was apparently being taught. They could do whatever they wanted to do and still view themselves as righteous, because righteousness, according to their system of beliefs, was basically knowing the right things about God and having these deeper spiritual experiences. A more common one today, well, in times past, is the idea that the cross does away not only with the punishment of sin, but also the commandments of sin. Well, because of the cross, I can do whatever I want as a, as a Christian. Now, that kind of bleeds into antinomianism as an attitude, simply minimizing sin or minimizing sin or, or, uh, and righteousness. And you might hear this in different ways, you know, it's God's job. It's my job to sin, it's God's job to forget and forgive. Um, or this is kind of more common. You may not hear this exactly, but doesn't this seem to be the attitude probably prevalent in our culture? Do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt someone. Now, again, I don't think I hear that phrase very often, but it seems to be the underlying pretty much morality or philosophy of most of the world. Now, now what's wrong with this, by the way? Well, first of all, this is assuming I can become and do whatever I want to do, and it doesn't hurt you in some way. Like we're islands, you know, and never meet, and our, we don't influence each other. But, of course, that's not the way reality is. We're not islands. We're more like puzzle pieces. And if I am deformed, if I'm not the shape I should be, it messes up the pieces around me. But the second thing, even apart from that, I mean, look, look at that phrase. Does that strike you as really what we're made to be as humans? That the best we can do is say, do whatever you want? Doesn't our, our, our own nature, our own conscience, our own understanding of what it means to be human say, no, there's something beyond this? And uh, so that's the, the air that he was battling. So one of the reasons I know that John was not viewing this as a blanket statement that if you're a Christian, you don't sin, and if you sin, that means you're not a Christian, is because of the historical context. But the other is just because of the context of the book. And you remember in uh, verses 8 through 10, if we claim to be without sin, as apparently some of those false teachers were doing, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So John's writing this knowing that we're going to be sinners. What he's writing against is an attitude that says it doesn't matter. That's what he's targeting here. In fact, I'm going to go a little farther. Not only will we still sin as Christians, but as we grow in Christ, we will see, see our sin more clearly. We will see our sin more clearly. I remember, um, boy, this is another lifetime. I was in high school once upon a time. And so one year they, they started a debate program. They had a new coach. They started a debate program at my high school. And uh, I signed up. 
and you have a partner. So my partner was a girl named Karen, and they had three divisions in, in high school debate. You had the novice division, then you had the JV, and then you had the varsity. And of course, since none of us had any experience, it was a brand new program, we were all in the novice division. And the first tournament we went to, there were five rounds or five different teams we debated against, my partner and I, I think we lost all five. But the next one, we won all, all five or all six. And the one after that, and we, we thought we were pretty hot stuff, you know. We've got two tournaments here in this novice division and undefeated. And uh, so for the next tournament, our coach decided to bump us up. And I don't remember the reason, but she skipped the JV division. Maybe it wasn't at that tournament, and we went right to the varsity. So we were going against people who had been doing this for three to four years. It was so embarrassing, so cringeworthy. We were so out of our league. After that first debate, we kind of looked at each other and we said, we are totally out of our element here. It was it was like a, a middle school basketball team playing the Pacers is what it was like, you know? It, it just, it was ugly. It wasn't a contest at all. Now, here's the deal. We suddenly realized we weren't very good debaters. But we weren't worse debaters than we were two weeks ago or three weeks ago. In fact, maybe we were a little bit better. But all of a sudden we saw what we could and should be, and we saw very painfully the gap between us and them. Now, how much more would we come to know Christ more? You will never come to the place that you know Christ and you're so changed by Christ and say, okay, I'm good enough now. No, because the very act of drawing closer to Christ makes you see your own faults and the gap between you and Christ more clearly. Paul's a good example of this. In 56 AD, somewhere about that, he's, he says, I am, I am unworthy to be called an apostle. A few years later, he would go beyond this. He says, I am the least of all the saints, all the, all the Christians, I am the least. And then more towards the end of his life, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now, was Paul a worse person than he was 10, 12 years ago? No. But he had grown in Christ, and he had understood the depth of who he was. And, and that's what I'm trying to get at here. We will continue to sin. In fact, we'll see our sin more clearly. But the question is not whether we're sinning. The question is our attitude towards that and our growth in that area. So that's where we're going to come to in the next part here. Why should we seek to be righteous? And that's where we're going to be, first of all, in verses 4 through 8. And I think John's going to give us two Two main reasons, and I love these reasons. There's not a word of fear. There's not a word of punishment. These are beautiful reasons why we should seek to become more righteous. Now, stop here for a second and ask yourself, this week, do I want to become more righteous? Do I want to have more victory over sin than I did the week before? And ask ourselves why. Why should we even care about that question? The world's not going to care. Most of the people we run into aren't going to notice. Why should we care? Why should we seek to be more righteous? And I, I think we are given two reasons here. First of all, because of our union with Christ, the righteous one. Let me show this to you. Verses 4 through 8. Do you see how often he ties in our need to be righteous with the fact 
that we are Jesus's and Jesus is righteous. So he, talk, he says it over and over again. He appeared. He might take away sin. In him is no sin. No one who lives in him is either uh, keeps on sinning. They haven't seen him or known him. And then at the last, he says you've got basically these two options. You've got Christ, who you're supposed to be united with, and you have the devil. And which one do you want your actions to conform to is the idea here. Now, this idea of union with Christ, you know, it's, it's hard to, to grasp this because we don't see it. But in God's mind, it's very real. This is going to be surprising. So in the New Testament, obviously it's not in the Old Testament because Christ was not named in the Old Testament. He was in the Old Testament, but not. Anyway, you know what I mean. Um, the word Christian is used three times. So we'd often describe ourselves as Christians, right? But we might say more often, you know, Jesus is in my heart. That, that's, remember what I, I remember when I became saved. That's kind of the way it was put. Well, that language is not unknown in the New Testament, but it only occurs four times that Christ is in us. And uh, so that's kind of rare that we talk about Christ being within us. But in Christ or in him occurs 27 times in the book of Ephesians. I'm trying to be a little clever there. Um, it occurs 160 times in the New Testament. Over and over and over again, the main point that they want to make about who and you and I are, are is not that Christ has come into our heart, not that we're Christians, that's true, but that we are in Christ. We're in Christ. I was trying hard to figure out how to kind of illustrate this a little bit. And uh, I'm going to steal someone else's illustration that I saw. So anyway, go with me on this. So this box here is going to represent your life and my life before we become Christians. So this green box or the green handle box is us. And in this, we are born with a sin nature, all right? But the bigger issue, well, not the bigger issue, but corresponding issue is this. We not only have a sin nature, but we are born in Adam or in sin. And Paul really explains this best in, in Romans chapter 5, where he talks about this, but very often other places as well. We are born into a humanity that is fallen, that is marked by sin, that is under God's judgment. This is us. So this is our kind of our sad state. We have sin within us, and we are in a humanity marked by, by sin and governed by that. Now, what happens when we get saved? Well, two things happen, actually. And one we think about a lot and one we don't. One is that Christ's spirit now resides within us. So technically, Christ is not in our heart. He's not going to fit. Remember, Jesus has a body right now. He doesn't lose that. But his spirit, he dwells within us through the Holy Spirit. So we have within us as believers now this conflict of nature. We still have the sin nature within us, but we also have the spirit of Christ. But here's the more important thing for my, that seems to be anyway from my point right here, is this. 
What happens is not only that Christ is within us through his spirit, but that we are in Christ. We are in Christ, so what happens to Christ happens to us. His destiny is our destiny. His resurrection is our resurrection. There is this unity within us. And yes, there will be a time when that sin nature is done away as well. But right now, we still have that within us. It's not taken away yet. But from God's viewpoint, it will be taken away. And the more important part is this. Not that he is within us, but that we are in Christ. 160 times we are told that we are in Christ. And that's what he's getting at here. And because of that, he says, I want you to take seriously what it means to be in Christ. Let me give you some of the verses. We looked at this one earlier. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or a new creature. The old is gone. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that's the first thing he wants to tell us as he talks about in him and, and points out to Jesus uh, what he was like is that our union with him reminds us that the most important thing about us is our union with Christ. And in this, you are united with Christ and Christ is not morally neutral. <laughs> in fact, he came not only to undo the sin in our life, but to destroy the works of the devil. So if we're united with Christ, if his spirit was within us, but also that we are in him, that we've been brought into this new reality, this new family, this new uh, humanity, then the first thing he would tell us is, look, the one you are united with is dreadfully opposed to sin. He has come to destroy the works of the devil, the sin that the devil has brought in, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So if you take that union seriously, that should be the first motivation for wanting to grow in righteousness, to be like him. And then secondly, not only because of our union with Christ, but our new birth through him. So one thing the box illustration can't get across is that it's more than just we're geographically in Christ in some way. But rather, as part of this now, we're in a new humanity. And, and so it's not just that we're in Christ, but within Christ, we are part of this new humanity, and therefore we have a new nature within us. How does he describe that here? Anyone who is born of God will not practice sinning, because God's seed remains in him. They cannot go on sinning, and again, I think what he means here is, Continue to live a life of sin, not caring about righteousness. They can't do that. Why? They've been born of God. It goes against their very nature. I can't fly. Why? Because it goes against my nature. I can hop a little bit, or I used to. I used to be able to touch the rim on a basketball uh, court. I know that's hard to believe. It really is. But I can't fly because it's against my nature. And, and that's the same thing. If we are the children of God, the very fact that we have been born into this new nature reminds us that that nature is incompatible with a life that says, I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't care what God, what God wants me to do. I'm going to do whatever I want, and who cares? If that's our attitude, he's saying, pretty sure you're not really a believer. You're not really in Christ. You're not really born of God because his DNA is within you. 
2 Corinthians 5, 7. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I, I put it this way. This is going to seem a little weird. Because you are in Christ, you are born as a new species. It's almost like a new species has, has arisen within this earth. You know, the Bible talks more about a new humanity, but in order to really get the gist of this, you see, God is going to remake this earth, perfected under the perfect authority and rule of Jesus Christ. And the way that Christ exercises his dominion is through his people. And these people then are made into the image of Christ. They have a different nature within them. So we, are, we have Christ's DNA within us, and therefore our nature is opposite of sin. One way to put it like, is like this. We are born into a new humanity with Christ, walking towards Christ's likeness. And that's kind of where I'd like to end up with this application, is that idea of walking with Christ. Walking with Christ. I want you to actually picture like a, like a hike up a mountain. Most of us have hiked up a mountain or at least a hill, right? Um, and, and when you go up this, this hike, you know, it's easier to just kind of stay in the, in the lowlands, not make the hike at all. But there's something worth it about that. And that idea of walking with Christ is, is very prevalent in the, in the New Testament. I want to then end this with two words of application. One, uh, the question is not whether you will always do right, but whether you're on the right road. You won't always do right. But if you're on the right road, that will bother you. If you're on the right road, you won't leave it there. If you're on the right road, you get up again. That's the question. Most of us know if you've been hiking, maybe you've got some mountain or some hill you're going you're gonna to climb, and you know that very rarely is it straight up the side of the mountain, right? You have two things. You have switchbacks, but then you also have ups and downs because there are ridges and curves. This, this isn't climbing up a triangle. There are variations in the, in the topography. And so sometimes you're going to go down, even though your path is going up. Sometimes you might go down a couple feet. Sometimes you might go down 100, 200 feet, and you're like, oh, man. Now i got to climb up back this much higher, right? But the question is not, at the moment, if you are a higher place than you were a few minutes ago, the question is, what road are you on? What path are you on? Um, maybe another way to put it is like this. This is an illustration in your bulletin. All right, we're going to be tempted, right? And we're all going to sin, every one of us. And these sins are going to produce guilt feelings within us. When this happens, we have one of two responses. And the way that we habitually choose to, to walk, whichever of these paths we choose, will tell us if we're in Christ. One path is to ignore or rationalize the sin. Other people do it. It's not that bad. You know, it's just the way I was brought up, whatever. Um, and usually the guilt feelings are going to remain, although you try to smother them down. But in the end, you avoid God, just like Adam and Eve did. First thing they did was hide from God, right? What happens? Well, you're going to face that same temptation. But you don't have any power to change. It's just this cycle of going into sin, rationalizing the sin, and avoiding God because you know he doesn't like it. Here's the other side, though. You still sin. You have guilt feelings. But what happens when that happens? Well, chapter 1. 
if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. So we receive forgiveness and grace. Now here's the thing. If we really get that, if we, if we have a genuine sorrow over our sin, this draws us closer to God. Because my heart is warmed that God would forgive me and I see anew how, how deeply I need his, his, his help and how deeply my own sins have, have caused uh, his pain and the cross. And when I receive that grace and forgiveness then, it leads me to say, God, help me. Help me to receive your, help me not to do that. Give me the strength to do that. And so I receive help and grace to avoid sin and what happens here is this. In this process, two things occur. One, I am less likely to go this way and continue the sin. I'm more likely to avoid. That's the first thing that happens. But the more important thing is this, how I feel about God. When I am on this path, this path of righteousness, even my failures draw me more to God. In fact, sometimes... Sometimes that's exactly what we need is to be reminded that we're big, fat sinners, but God's grace is even better than us, deeper than our sin. And so this, instead of helping us to avoid God, if we're on this path of righteousness, even our failures draw us towards him. So that's what I mean. It's more important not to always get it right because you're not. And if that's your goal, you're just going to be frustrated and disappointed and um, feel terrible about yourself. But rather... On this path, just keep coming to God with forgiveness, asking for grace and strength, and let your heart be drawn towards that. Here's the last thing is this. Let yourself be pulled by love and not driven by fear. Um, in chapter 4, he's going to remind us there is no fear in love. I, I love that phrase. There is no fear in love. Now, did you notice in any part of this passage does he play in our fears? Does he tell us that God's going to disinherit us if we sin a lot? Does he tell us that God's going to nail us? Maybe he won't you know, disinherit us. I'll still be a Christian, but man, is he going to make my life miserable? Do you see that anywhere in here? Do you see this anywhere in here at, at all to appear to fear? And it, you know that, that's how we're motivated sometimes, not to the right. We fear punishments of God. We fear we can't pray to God or receive his blessing because we haven't been good enough. Or maybe we fear not meeting expectations of other people or ourselves. We fear not measuring up according to some viewpoint in our mind. But instead, throughout this whole book, you see again and again what he desires is for us to be so enthralled with God's love for us that we love him in return in a deeper and a deeper and a deeper way. And we desire to walk with him because of that. It's a change of our desire, not this top-down control where he just makes us do what he wants. I'm going to end with this just because I've got some good pictures here and a good story. Uh, anyway, I like the story. So anybody recognize what this is? Yeah. Yeah, well, no fair, you were in there. So this is a half dome in Yosemite. So this is Yosemite Valley, and this is half dome. And uh, guess what? Yours truly hiked all the way up to here. I know that doesn't look like I know, uh, but it happened. And uh, 
almost in spite of myself. Let me, let me explain. Some years ago, when I was a little bit in better shape, uh, Joe and I took a trip out to, uh, we were out in near Tahoe, and we drove over to, to Yosemite to do some hiking. And this hike here, Yosemite, is actually so popular, um, this hike, I'm sorry, in Half Dome in Yosemite, is so popular that they have this lottery system because they, they don't want too many people to hike at any one time, so it's not unsafe. And normally it takes six months to, to get a ticket for this. And, uh, you know, you're kind of on a wait list and everything. And so when we were researching this, I'm like, okay, good, because I really don't want to go on that hike. And yet when we get there at the ranger station, we get some information. She says, oh, by the way, we have a couple openings for a half dome. And Joe's all about it. <laughs> and because Joe was all about it, I said, okay, let's do it. Now, here's the problem. You have to get up to here. We have to start down here, okay? There are no parking lots up here. <laughs> so another picture. You have to start down here. This is the trail. You go up all the way up here. So it's like a 16-mile round trip. But the problem is you go up 5,000 feet. And then the other problem is this. You see that part where it says cable? So you go around the back of the dome because this part's way too steep. So you have over here the cables. Yeah, let me show you what those look like. You see, it's too steep to climb up unless you're you know, a mountain goat or you know, have crampons and all kinds of equipment. So what they do, they put these cables up here. Now, I didn't want to go on this trip. Did I mention I have a, a slight fear of heights as well? So when we got down to the bottom of, this, of, the, of the dome here on this side, looked up at those cables, I did not want to climb up that wall. I was tired and I was scared. And you know what? I did it anyway. I did it because someone I loved really wanted to share that experience with me. And I wanted to share it with him. And I'm really glad I did, by the way. Uh, it's now a great memory, but it is one of our, our best times together. And here's the point on that. Here's the point. What pulled me forward was love. And I think our Apostle John, the Apostle of Love, would say the same thing about our climb to righteousness. Ultimately, the only thing that can sustain us is the love of God that draws us forward in our love for him. The love of God assures us that he's with us in our failures, tells us that he has good and wonderful plans for us at the top, and that the love of other people and the days I grow to become who I should be, I, I can bless them in ways I couldn't before. It's not only love for God, but love for others as I become what I should be. You see, it's not like the hikes of this world. This isn't about getting to the top before somebody else or getting pictures put on my Instagram feed. It's not really become, becoming a better person, feeling better about myself. It's about a person who is so in love with Jesus Christ that they want to become more like him. They want to climb this path of righteousness because they know that Jesus, in one sense, is right there with him every step of the way, but what Jesus has for them in a full experience of Jesus is there at the top. God is love. It's a seed. It's the DNA he puts in every believer. And when we walk the path of righteousness out of love, we show this incredible truth that he is love. And we really are his children.